The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. I want to ask the question here as I get started. What does it take to be on the team? What, what do you have to do to be on the team? Can you still be on the team if you tackle your own player? If you throw the ball off of your own player's face out of bounds, do you still get to be on the team? If you are on the team and you are in the outfield and you just sit down and count the grass and let balls drop around you, are you still on the team? At one point, are you no longer on the team? Let alone uh, set aside professional sports. If it's just a recreational sport that you're playing or participating in, and you've paid the fee and you own the jersey, you have number seven, you have the jersey, is that all it means to be on the team? Is that all it takes to be on the team? We're in a series called The Whole Shebang. We're taking all of 2010 to look at the grand, epic, overall story of God, and we want to be transformed by that story. We're looking at the biblical story as well as all that has happened from there and hints at to how, how the overall story is going to end. That's what we're going to look at uh, into the fall and as we finish off 2010. But right now, we are on the fourth tab, if you have a binder, and it's entitled The Revolution. Right now, we are in the first, cent- first century. We are with these 12 disciples, the ones that Jesus poured into. We are finding out what God commissioned them to do after Jesus ascended into heaven. And then they're left with the call from God to change the world, to start to be part of a revolution of love and compassion that would change the world. So, the question this morning is, can you be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, and not be part of the revolution? Can you be on the team and not play in the game with regard to the revolution? Can those coexist? Can we do that? That's where we're headed this morning. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we launch into this. Father, once again, I'm thankful for your presence. We don't need to... Uh, we don't need to call for you to be here, that you love and long to be here as a part of our worship, as a part of our intention to draw closer to you. So, God, we are thankful for your presence. Would you stir up what you want to stir up? God, I know that everyone in this room, we want to, we want to play in the game. We want to have a significant role in this world, in this life. And so, with that desire and with your love and your invitation for us to be part of that. I pray that you'd make that connect this morning. Come, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, I talked about the three Ps that we learned about in Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10. These are three revolutionary guys, uh, all starting with the letter P. We looked at Philip, and then Paul, and then Peter. And that these guys, last week, we discovered that they realize that this revolution, this whole shebang story is bigger than they could possibly have imagined. Way bigger. That God wanted to expand this revolution to go way beyond Jerusalem, way beyond the Jewish people, which is what the story up until this point has been all about. That God wanted to expand it way beyond that group, which is consistent with what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, the region around Jerusalem, to Samaria, the region north 
of Judea and to the ends of the earth, that it'll just go further and further and further and further out. And this is what happens in the story in the book of Acts. What we're going to look at over the next four weeks is that this revolution expands further and further out to the ends of the earth. And one of the key players in this is a revolutionary named Paul. And this guy, he will be kind of the focal point for the next few weeks. This guy realized, okay, now I'm on the team. I want to play. What am I supposed to do? How is this supposed to work? And he packed up. He said, I am going to uh, make a trip. I'm going to go on a journey. He went on the first of three missionary journeys where he just started walking around. His first missionary journey was his shortest. It was two years, hundreds of miles, and he just walked around, and he would either encourage those who knew about Christ, who had heard about Christ as they were starting churches, or he would tell people who did not know anything about Christ, or he would run from those who were threatening his life because they were threatened by the message and the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul was this revolutionary who went out and said, I am going to do something. When he got back after two years on his first missionary journey, we're now in Acts chapter 15, he returns and there is a big debate happening in Jerusalem. And the debate is very much connected to what we talked about last week if you were here. The issue is circumcision. Do people who are not Jewish, do they have to be circumcised in order to become Christians, in order to embrace and receive the Holy Spirit? In other words, if, if a non-Jewish person is here, does that person have to be circumcised and go through the Jewish faith, through Judaism, and then become a Christian, be circumcised here? Or can that person have direct access to the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? This is the issue that is going on, and it, it's been, it was pretty hot, 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 hot topic. So now we're jumping in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. We are jumping into the debate. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Here he's talking about Acts chapter 10 and the story of his encounter with a Roman soldier named Cornelius. It's what we talked about last week, that Peter felt it very odd. It was actually against his Jewish law to go into this Gentile, non-Jewish home and tell them about Jesus. But God asked him to do so. And Peter was blown away because this is the first time that anybody had become a follower of Christ directly without having to go through the Jewish faith. This is the story of Cornelius, very significant story in the whole shebang. And Peter is referring back to that, reminding people of that. Verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. I might add, directly to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter was reminding them, this is how the revolution is going to expand. It's, it's, people are going to have direct access to the person of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this debate continued. What does it mean to be on the team? What do we need to do in order to be on the team? 
Do, do, can we be cut from the team? Do we need to be cut in order to be on the team, so to speak, if you get my drift? Okay, so here we are in Acts chapter 15, and we, we learn in verse 13 that there is a guy who is the leader of this debate, and his name is James. James, soon after this, ends up writing a letter that becomes part of our New Testament. It is a letter entitled James. It's the it's, his, it's in his name, I guess. So this, the, the book of James in the New Testament. So we're going to turn there if you would. Go to the book of James if you would. It's a little tricky to find. It's near the end of the New Testament. It's after the book of Hebrews. I usually find Hebrews before I find James. James is kind of a little tiny thing. If you have one of the Bibles that we give out, it's on page 830. If you have one of the Bibles that we don't give out, it's either on page 830 or another number. Just to, I want to be helpful. So, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the younger brother of Jesus. And that had to be a difficult gig for James as he's growing up. It just had to be. I can only imagine the number of times that his mother, Mary, would have said to him, James, why can't you be like your brother? And how, and how frustrating that would have been. And how many times James would have thought, Mom, you treat him like he's a god. And all that whole kind of, how difficult that would have been. And there are stories that James really did struggle and not believe. He was one of the later ones to believe Jesus really was the Messiah. Because he's not the Messiah. He's Jesus. He's my older brother who gave me noogies when I was growing up and the whole thing. He was just his older brother. But it took him a while to realize Boom, this is the Christ. And he became a passionate follower of, not his brother, but a passionate follower of the Messiah. And he wrote a letter. He has one writing in our New Testament. And his writing is a favorite among many because it is a very aggressive writing. It's very short and he goes directly to the point he uh, pulls no punches. It has a tone really unlike anything in the New Testament. It's more reflective of some of, the, some of the Old Testament kind of aggressive flavor. This guy is a revolutionary, and he wants to waste no time with his message. We're jumping into James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14. Again, this is, a, this is amidst the whole debate of what do, what do we need to do in order to be on the team? Do we need to be circumcised, not circumcised? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That verse in and of itself is something to soak in for a while. Verse 20, you foolish Man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then James goes to talk about a very significant person in the Jewish story, Abraham. We looked at Abraham early on 
in the whole shebang. He is considered the father of the Jewish nation. And he is known as being a man of faith. That he was justified by his faith. He is the poster boy for faith. American history has honest Abe and Jewish history has faithful Abe, if you will. Very, very known for his faith. Faith, faith, believed, believed, believed. And James here says his faith is evidenced by what he did. Even the mighty Abraham, his faith shows up. We see it by what he did, not just what he thought. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Jump to verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. For those of you who have been paying attention, did any of you detect the subtle hint of a message that James is trying to offer through these verses? Subtle hint. Faith without works is dead. Our beliefs shape our actions. We cannot separate the two. Our beliefs shape our actions. If you believe that the airplane is going to crash into a mountain, you will likely not get onto the airplane. If you believe that you have a decent chance of winning the lottery, you will be foolish enough to buy a ticket. Your faith dictates, shapes your actions. If you believe that your car does not need an oil change, that that's just propaganda from the mechanics of the world and that that's really not something that a vehicle needs, you will see that pesky light on your dashboard and then have to decide what your new car is going to be. If you believe in the rhythm method, you will be building a new crib. (laughs) Faith, our, our belief, It shapes our actions. If you believe that those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will spend eternity in a place separated from God, in a place called hell, if you really believe that, you will do something about it in terms of those you care about. If you believe that you are invited to be part of a revolution of love and compassion and that you have a responsibility because you are in the top 3% wealthiest people in the world, if you believe that, you will do something about it. Our, Our beliefs shape our actions. And the flip side is true too. If you want to know what you believe, take an inventory of what you're doing. If you want to know what you believe, look at your checkbook. You can't separate the two. If you are obsessed with your appearance, with your body, with your shape, obsessed with it, then you believe that's where your significance comes from. If you work an enormous number of hours per week, then you can back that up because that's what you're doing. Back that up to the fact that you believe your time is better spent at work than, than by yourself, than with friends, than with family. If you want to know what you believe, take an inventory of what you're doing because our beliefs shape our actions. Beliefs that don't have any actions 
are things that we don't really believe in. Faith without works is dead. Now, some of you love the book of James and love to be inspired and challenged by this kind of thing. Some of us struggle with the words of James here. And you know, you're in good company. People have wrestled with James chapter 2 for centuries because there's a part of it that kind of challenges the whole grace of the message of the gospel. Think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. It doesn't say anything about doing anything. It seems that there is a contradiction there. The book of James was written around this debate in Jerusalem about what does it mean to be on the team. And there was another book, a letter in our New Testament that was written around that same time. Paul decided to write a letter to the churches in Galatia, which is one of the areas where he visited on his first missionary journey. And he wrote a letter to them. It's called Galatians. And the books of James and Galatians are considered to be the two earliest New Testament writings. These two books were written about the same time, and they were the first two writings in our New Testament. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Galatians. It's a little easier to find. It's kind of in the middle of the New Testament. And my trick for this is the acronym General Electric Power Company. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So that's the way I, uh, that's a really highly technical thing I learned in seminary. Uh, So if you're looking for Galatians and you find any of those four, you can find it. It's the first of those four. General Electric Power Company, Galatians chapter 3. Again, this was written in and around or in response to this debate that was happening in Jerusalem about what it means to be on the team. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Paul also was a revolutionary. He knew he he didn't want to mince words here. He knows how to make friends and influence people. Who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, did you receive the Spirit by what you did, by the laws that you did or did not do, or did you receive the Spirit by what you heard and then in, and then in turn believed? Is it by what you did or what you believed? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, you attained the Spirit by what you heard, by what you believed, not by what you did. Don't slip into feeling like you need to earn your way into heaven. That's ridiculous. You've already received it by what you've believed. You can't earn your way into that. Continuing, Paul says in uh, verse 26, You are all sons, and I'll add daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He is talking to Gentiles, to non-Jewish folks. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You don't need to be circumcised. It doesn't need to go through this Jewish faith. It goes directly to you. You are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And here, when we read James chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3, is where we could identify a little bit of a contradiction here. James says faith without works is dead. Paul says we are justified, we are sons and daughters of God through faith and faith alone. It is only about faith. You cannot work your way into it. You're foolish if you try to work your way into it. Therein lies the apparent contradiction. But there is no contradiction. There really is no contradiction here. They are talking about two different things to two different groups of people. Paul is talking about salvation. Here in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is talking about entering into a relationship with Christ. He's talking about being on the team, getting on the team. That it is, we become sons and daughters, we become players on the team simply by faith. You don't, you cannot work your way into it. James is talking to believers. He's talking to those who have already entered into relationship with Christ. He's saying to them, you're already in. Now, your faith is dead unless you're doing something. Your faith is evidenced by you doing something. That salvation happens through faith, but that's, that our faith gets walked out through, our, through how we respond to that, through our actions, through our deeds, through our works. And this apparent contradiction, I believe, is cleared up in chapter 5 here. Paul, the one who's talking about salvation, he writes this in chapter 5, verse 6. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Just so you know, we're staying in Galatians here for the rest of the morning. You're welcome. Uh, Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. This whole debate, he shoots it straight on. It is not about whether or not you're circumcised. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. All that matters is faith. You want to know what faith looks like? It expresses itself through love. All that matters is faith. You want to know what it looks like? It means that when you do become a follower of Christ, you will join the revolution that expresses itself through love. You will be part of the revolution of love. Now, Paul finishes his letter to the Galatians by saying that if you want to grow, if you, now, okay, now if, if you come into this faith, if you want to grow, then you've got to do something. You've got to do something. If you want to experience the fullness of life, that Christ talked about, then you can't just sit down in the outfield, watch balls drop around you, and expect it to happen to you. He says here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked, or as I've said before, God is no fool. A man reaps what he sows. This is the mother of all principles we reap what we sow. You do not have to be a Bible scholar, comfortable, familiar with Scripture in any way to realize this is the way life works. 
we reap what we sow. Yes, the timing can seem unfair. Life is not fair. I tell my kids all the time, you know, they say, that's not fair. Life is not fair. There's no promise anywhere that life is going to be fair. But we reap what we sow. Timing may not work out. Balance may not work out. The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But we reap what we sow. If we sow nothing, we will reap nothing. You can't just hope for an orange tree to grow in your backyard. If we sow negativity, we will reap destruction. We reap what we sow. Look at our marriage relationships. Men, if you want to have a healthy, vibrant, playful, joyful relationship with your wife, you can't ignore her. You can't watch TV and hope that this joy is just going to happen. You're going to need to turn the TV off, look at her in the eyes, and talk to her. What a strange concept. We reap what we sow. I, many wives in the church are tragically struggling with a husband they feel is not stepping up to the plate in terms of bringing spiritual leadership, in terms of bringing what they could be bringing spiritually to the family. Maybe you're sitting with that person. Maybe that person is not here today. And it is a, it is a struggle or a frustration. And many who are in that place, I believe, make the mistake of, of sowing seeds of negativity and judgment that reap what, exactly what you don't want. We sow these seeds that, that of disrespect that reap the thing that we do not want out of your husbands. Scripture says that you are to respect your husbands, not because they deserve it. We respect them and we believe that they can become what we hope for them. And those beliefs will turn into actions in their lives. In the same way, husbands, we are to love our wives, not because they deserve it, but because we are called to. We are called to lay down our lives for them. Divorce is this thing that we are often surprised by, whether it's in a, a, a couple that we're familiar with, and we just say, wow, I, I, I had no idea that that was going on. It came out of the blue. Maybe in your own past relationship, it just came out of the blue. You had no idea that she was lonely, that he was struggling so much. And it often feels like divorce comes from out of the blue, but it never does. It never does. There, are, there were seeds that were sown at some point, and we reap what we sow. That this, this ugly, nasty, painful tree of divorce started with a seed somewhere, a seed of disrespect or a seed of lack of love. I'm not trying to throw guilt here amidst all the pain that, is, that, is, that I know is in this room, in this area, but we reap what we sow. It's important for us to, to acknowledge that, to see that, that principle in life. That principle is also consistent in our relationship with God how in how we interact with God. That if you are living a life of willful disobedience to God, in other words, there is a part of your life that you know from Scripture or just wisdom is not something you should be a part of, and you're just saying, yeah, 
forget, I'm, I, I'm gonna do this, whether it's sexual immorality, you're sleeping with somebody that you're not married to, it is a, an addiction that is private and dark and self-destructive and you can't get to the point of bringing anybody in on that, some kind of willful disobedience to God, maybe for the last two weeks, for the last three years, you feel like you're getting away with something because nobody knows about it, you reap what you sow. We reap what we sow. There, you are not getting away with anything. Paul says, do not be deceived. Please don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. He will not be mocked. He's no fool. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Here's the good news. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This is great news that not only if we sow seeds of negativity, they will grow into destruction, but if we sow seeds that are positive, that are healthy, that are consistent with the Spirit, they will grow into beautiful fruit. And Paul here in chapter 6 is referring to what he talked about in chapter 5. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What grows in healthy soil where positive seeds are sown? Well, things that look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Little Jenny Piccolo played, yeah. Wow, thanks. This, these are, this is great news that when we sow these seeds that are positive, they will grow into something bigger. And, and you know, the, what grows, what we reap, is always bigger than what we sow. So just little efforts in your marriage, in your relationships, in your addictions, whatever, little efforts towards the fruit of the Spirit, little seeds that are sown can grow into something huge, magnificent, and beautiful. Trees are always bigger than seeds. Always bigger than seeds. Paul continues, verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us be inspired by the invitation to be part of the revolution to to let our faith show up in deeds and works that are good. Not to earn our salvation, but because we realize we are part of something amazing. We are part of a revolution. A 2,000 year old revolution. So let me revisit the question I asked at the beginning. Can we be a follower of Christ? Can we be on the team without being part of the revolution? And the answer is yes. Yes, I think that is the message of grace and of faith is that you don't have to do anything to get on the team. You don't earn your way. You can't earn your way. It's foolish to think that you can earn your way. You can tackle your own players. You can throw balls off the faces of your own players. You can sit in the outfield. You can take shots that you shouldn't take, but you can be on the team. In fact, you don't even have to pay the fee to be on the team. The fee has been paid for by the work of Christ on the cross. You get to be on the team. And here's the beautiful news, you can't even get kicked off. 
There's nothing you can do to get kicked off the team. Nothing. No way are you going to wake up in the morning and be surprised by, oh, there's a decision that was made. I've been cut. I've been traded. You cannot get kicked off the team. Now, I believe that it's possible for you to take off your jersey and say, boom, I am walking away from this. I decide to walk away from this. But you cannot be kicked off the team. But, and you knew there was a but coming, you will live a miserable, difficult, unfinished life if you're on the team and you don't play. If you just stay benched, it is a frustrating journey. So many of our churches are filled with frustrated, bored, tired Christians who are on the team, they understand grace, they understand faith, but they have not allowed their faith to show up in terms of actions and deeds, not because their arms are twisted, but because they have an opportunity to experience, to play in the game, to get in the game. So I want to ask you once again this morning, Get in the game. I want to inspire and encourage you to get in the game. There's so many opportunities here in this place for you to volunteer, for you to be a part, for you to join with a small group, for you to start a small group, connect with um, leaders and find out how you could do that. Uh, Kit Abbott is our new children's pastor. He's doing new exciting things over the summer and he needs people to jump in and be part of that. There are many of you who would be so great working with children's ministry and you don't even know it yet. There are some of you, uh, not so much because I think you scare the kids, but you never know. You never know. There's so many opportunities to get in the game. We have a website, mountainpark.org, and on the front page of the website is a tag that says Volunteer Central. And there are plenty of opportunities for you to kind of click in and check it out and find out maybe how God is inviting you to get off the bench and get in the game. Go to Rocky Point. Go to this. That's we've set up three different trips over the next three weekends. 39 bucks for any of these trips. Go to the informational meeting and just find out all your reasons to not go. At least go and ask those reasons because you may realize, oh, those are not valid reasons anymore. I guess I got to get in the game. And you'll be so thankful that you did. Get off the bench. Join the game. Take a few shots. Miss a few shots. You'll enjoy life so much more. Let me pray with you. God, thank you that you invite us to be players in the game. God, you are, you are the coach and um, you know what it means to be a perfect player. And so we are not going to get in the game and impress you. We might say, watch this, watch this, just because we love you and we want to make you proud of us. Well, we're not going to impress you, God. We just get to experience the joy of playing in the game. So Father, I pray that you would help those who do not know your son Jesus to realize that entering into faith is not about what we do. It's just about believing in the power of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray for those here in this room who, who have entered into that faith that we would never slip into thinking we gotta work our way towards anything, but that we would simply respond to the purposeful, life-changing opportunity to be part of the revolution, to get off the bench, to use the gifts you've given us to 
to give away our time and our talents and our treasures towards the work of the kingdom. What an opportunity that is. And I pray for the fulfillment that we experience when we get in the game and we enjoy you. We are thankful this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.